American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life when the words all come down. Like Welcome to another to stupid fucking time. episode of a shitty podcast no. called American Timeline. It sucks. And if you like it, you're stupid. That's not how we're going to start this. Why not? That's just the wrong foot. Welcome to my foot. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. That's it. I'm Amy and that's Joe. My name is Joe and I'm a stupid piece of shit. That's true. Hey! You're not too swift yourself. And today we're talking about 1969. That's true. And particularly May and June of yes. 1969. And if you've never heard of this podcast, it's a podcast about murders and crazy shit that happened in history, because we are history for jerks. Okay. What's and this episode first? picks up in May of 1969, dude. Uh, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the Amen Break, which is a six-second drum solo Okay. in a song called Amen by the 1960s funk and soul outfit, the Winstons. Have you ever heard of the Winstons? No, nope, I have not. So I'm going to play this drum break. This is the most famous six-second drum solo of all time. It's been sampled and used in over 1,500 songs. Wow. It's a drum solo perf- performed by Gregory Sylvester G.C. Coleman in this song. Okay. Oh, the song is called Amen Brother. Sorry. Six seconds that changed the course of music history. Mm-hmm. From NWA. You recognize it? Yeah. From you from everything? It's in every. I mean, I couldn't tell you like a song it's in. But yeah, but you've heard it a million times, right? Yeah, probably. Um, you are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Yep. Anyway, I used to know all those words. Yeah, did you? Yeah. yeah. Did you say them all the time everywhere you went? No, oh. obviously not. Anyway, that's the Amen break, and I got to edit all that down to something yeah. manageable. Uh, but that was released on May 1st of 1969, dude. The same day that Wes Anderson was born, American film director and screenwriter. Okay. Uh, he was born to American parents in Paris, Stop France. It. Did you know that? Nobody cares. Uh, that same day, a Senate hearing was convened to determine whether to cut funding to PBS. Yes. Then, then unknown kids show host Fred Rogers mm-hmm. spoke for six minutes and ended with a song straight out of Compton. No, I don't think so. <laughs> now, uh, the senator told him, looks like you just earned the $20 million. A few years later, when Burger King ran a commercial with a parody lookalike named Mr. Rodney, mm-hmm. in 1984, Rogers asked them to stop. Mm-hmm. The senior vice president of the company pulled the $15,000 ad without a second thought, saying, Mr. Rogers is one guy you don't want to mess with. Good. Hopefully now we have peace in the neighborhood. Yep. I remember. I've seen clips of that. Clips of that where he's talking about yeah, how important so, PBS is. Yeah, yeah it's he, so good. He did it. Um. 
and how kids, you know, all the stuff about how good it is for kids. Kids need it, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, one of my favorites. And then Friday, May 2nd, have you watched the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers No, I haven't seen that yet. You should watch it. It's on on somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Friday, May 2nd, 1969, dude, the farewell. 69. Yeah, stop doing that. Why? Because it's irritating me. It, it is? Yes. You think it's irritating our listeners? Probably. I apologize, listeners. You see, 69 stop is it. a sex position. What's next? Uh, the farewell episode of Gomer Pyle, USMC, was telecast on U.S. television with Private Pyle transferring out of fictional Camp Henderson after five seasons. Although the military situation comedy was the second most watched TV show in the its fifth season, mm-hmm. Jim Neighbors decided it's time to retire from the program in order to pursue his own short-lived variety show, The Jim Neighbors Hour. In his singing career. Where his co-star, Frank Sutton, would be a recurring guest. Yep. And then Sunday, May 4th, 1969, James Foreman a militant black leader who had formed the National Black Economic Development Conference, mm-hmm. NBEDC, and had issued what he called the Black Manifesto, seeking $500 million mm-hmm. in reparations from white Christian churches and Jewish synagogues, followed through with his April 29th pledge to disrupt church services by appearing at New York City's venerable Riverside Church during interdenomin- interdenominational Christian services. Mm-hmm. Reverend Ernest T. Campbell signaled the organist and choir to play a recessional hymn to drown out Foreman's attempt to speak while he led a walkout of the congregation. Campbell would later read Foreman's manifesto and preach a controversial sermon, The Case for Restitution, though the Riverside Church would decline Foreman's demands for 60% of the church's income from investments. At least one house of worship for Washington Square United Methodist Church in New York's Greenwich Village would donate $15,000 to Foreman's Fund. Oh, that's good. Somebody gave him money. Yeah. yeah, It's way, you know. Way past time. They really should have. I mean, imagine, like, what if that would have succeeded and they would have paid reparations? Because Christianity has had so much to do with racism in this country. I know. That's kind of the thing. A lot of people would, people would naturally think, like, why would do the churches have to do it? Right. But, but you're right. It it does have a lot to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Historically. Tell Tell us all the ways. Tell us all the ways. You have time. No, we gotta move on. We, we gotta, gotta get to, through June. We gotta get some. We gotta get to somebody. Hopefully, stabbing somebody with a screwdriver. No we more can't drum talk solos. About that. We gotta get moving. Monday, May fifth, nineteen sixty nine, the Boston Celtics won the National Basketball Association championship by two points in the seventh game of the best of seven series, beating the L.A. Lakers one hundred eight to one hundred six. The Lakers had overcome a seventeen point deficit in the game's final ten minutes, closing from being down one hundred to eighty three to within one point. Uh, before falling behind again 108 to 102 during the 1960s, with the exception of the 1966-67 season, the Celtics won nine of the ten championships played during the decade. You know what I think? Yep. I think um, that the reason they're called the Celtics and not the Celtics, yeah, is because their fans are real stupid, and they and, and they just figure, well, we'll just go with Celtics because that's what they're going to say it is anyway when they see it. They're not going to know it's supposed to be said like Celtic. The reason the Boston Celtics and the Glasgow Celtic and all those other sports teams founded around 1900 pronounced their name Celtic is not because they were founded by ignorant folk who didn't know any better, <laughs> but because they spoke English and did not know the proper pronunciation 
of the Irish um, word. Of the Irish word, I guess. Yep. So they are ignorant yeah. if they don't know how the pronunciation. That's the definition of that's, being ignorant that's is not Goog- knowing. That's according to Google. All right, let's uh, move on. Oh. Somebody else says, so actually the S pronunciation is correct in Fran- French, Britain, and Galician, but for some reason the English changed to the Celtic variant. So mm. I think Celtic is actually wrong. According to the Celtic wiki. All right. <laughs> that could be wrong. Um, yeah. And uh, on May 7th was a Wednesday of 1969. The Oakland Oaks won the second ABA championship over the Indiana Pacers. The Oakland Oaks don't exist anymore, but that's the different. The ABA isn't around either. Um, and then we're going to jump to May 10th, which is a Saturday of 1969. Uh the invade zip to zap the invasion of the 339 person town of zap north dakota by more than 2000 college students and young revelers was brought to a quick end by the north dakota national guard and local law enforcement overnight the uninvited visitors transformed the main street of this tiny village into a shambles overnight breaking windows setting bonfires in the middle of the street and destroying retail merchandise the heaviest damage was to zaps two beer taverns lucky bar whose owner had stocked side the side room with ten thousand dollar ten thousand cases of beer in anticipation of the revelry and had left some young employees in charge and paul's bar the event had started as a joke in the student newspaper at north dakota state university which suggested that students could come to the fort lauderdale of the north for a celebration Village Mayor Norman Fux had endorsed the idea in a letter to several of the state's colleges, welcoming students to good, clean, beer-bust, food-munching, tear-jerking, rib-tickling fun. What's jerking again? <laughs> uh, tear-jerking? Oh, okay. Uh, yep. And that's the same day that Dennis Bergkamp was born, a Netherlands soccer football forward. Okay. You can skip all those birthdays, by the way. And then on Monday... May 12th, 1969, for all you conspiracy theorists out there, the U.S. National Weapons Center began its classified Project Gulf Q, a series of weather modification experiments in conjunction with the Naval Weather Research Facility at the Atmospheric Sciences Laboratory. In five of the 16 tests done over an 18-day period in the Gulf of Mexico, the center was able to cause rain to fall within 10 minutes of the seeding of warm cumulus clouds. The report would be approved for public release in 1974. Meanwhile, Kim Fields was being born. Tootie. That was Tootie from Facts of Life. Yes, I know who that is. And she, if you haven't heard me mention, she is still beautiful. All right. She looks good. Let's move it on. Man, I want to leave you for Kim Fields. Tuesday, May 13th, 1969. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to skip that one. No, Wednesday, May 14th, 1969, Kate Blanchett was born. You could have skipped Thursday, that one. May 15th, 1969, Robert Rayford, a si- not Redford, Rayford, a 16-year-old black American teenager identified years later as Robert R., died at the Washington University Medical Center in, in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, right. Of complications from a baffling medical condition that caused lesions of Kaposi's sarcoma. 
In 1986, after the human in immunodeficiency virus, HIV, oh. had been found to be the cause of AIDS, Robert R.'s tissue samples would be examined and found to have had the antibodies to HIV and the P24 antigen, making Robert R. the earliest confirmed case of AIDS in America. Wow. 1969. 1969. Yep. Isn't that nuts? That's crazy. I mean, how would you know if you... if <laughs> You wouldn't. You didn't. They I mean, it was just some strange thing. Yeah. I mean, how does a doctor really know it's something that's new, like it's going to be an epidemic? Well, I think about who thought to, who remembered him and yeah. to, to run those tests. Yeah. Somebody must have been like, oh, I wonder if that was that dude. Somebody must have. Abe Fortas, that same day, became the first U.S. Supreme Court justice to resign as a result of a scandal. Oh, really? In 1966, while serving on the court, Fortas entered into an agreement with a charitable foundation funded by financier Louis Wolfson, which contemplated that Fortas would receive $20,000 per year for life for services. The story of the pact with the Wolfson Family Foundation, Fortas's acceptance of a $20,000 payment, was revealed on May 4th by Life magazine. Boom. So he had to... So there's always been corruption. Yep. He had to get out. And on Friday, May 16, 1969, Venera 5, a Soviet Union space probe, landed on Venus, but ceased transmitting data back to Earth after 43 minutes of its descent through the Venusian atmosphere. It's supposed to be the hottest planet Venusian. in the solar system. I don't know how that, that's got to be impossible. Yeah, I guess it blew up. Or Must have. Tucker fucking Carlson was born that same day. And then Saturday, May 17th, 1969, the first popular studio album to be promoted as a rock opera was released. Jesus Christ Superstar? By English rock band The Who. Oh, Tommy. Through Decca Records. Yep, Tommy. Guitarist Pete Townsend created the backstory described, described in the release and composed the songs that furthered the plot. Yep. And then Sunday, May 18, 1969, Diane Tony became the first of three young girls in Connecticut to be kidnapped and murdered in the same fashion in a 13-day period. Diane, age 11, vanished from her neighborhood in New Haven mm -hmm. after going to watch a parade. Do you know? Is this something you're going to I don't know. Me? No. Um, on May 27, 10-year-old Mary Mount failed to return home from playing in a park near her home in New Canaan. 35 miles west of New Haven. Three days later, 14-year-old Dawn Cave vanished after walking away from her home in Bethany, about 10 miles north of New Haven. The bodies of all three girls would be found later in the summer, all with fractured skulls. No person would ever be charged with the murders, although police would question Connecticut individual, uh, another Connecticut individual would be convicted of the killing in August 1970 of three young retarded people in New Haven in similar fashion. Oh, wow. That same day, Martika was born. Remember that act, the singer <laughs> that she was on? No. Kids Incorporated? I don't remember that. You ever watch Kids I Incorporated? Didn't. I didn't. The Martika sang, Toy Soldiers. Oh, okay. All fall down. All right. Like let's, that. let's keep moving. I was hot for Martika when she was on Kids Incorporated. I will tell you that. Oh, all right. So you got some competition between Tootie and, and Martika. Martika. So I, actually, it's not really competition. I just want you to be more like them. Okay. May 20th, 1969, the United States National Guard helicopters sprayed skin-stinging powder on anti-war protesters in California. Oh, boy, that doesn't change either, does that it? That doesn't change. 
And then Wednesday, May 21st, 1969, Judge Warren E. Berger of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia was selected by U.S. President Richard Nixon to be the next Chief Justice of the United States. Chief Justice Earl Warren had previously, previously announced his intention to retire mm-hmm. after the end of the 68-69 U.S. Supreme Court term. Wow. And on May 24th, 1969, the Beatles take over the number one spot on the Billboard charts with with Billy Preston. You know that song with Billy Preston? The Beatles no. and Billy Preston? Get Back. Oh, uh, yeah. That's you ever a hear good that one. song? Yeah. Get back to where you once belong. Get back, JoJo. They're talking to me. Sunday, May 25th, 1969, Midnight Cowboy was released. You know what that is? Yes. An X-rated Oscar-winning John Schlesinger film. Dustin Hoffman. Why is it X-rated? Is I don't know. Wiener? Did they show Dustin mm, Hoffman's Wiener? I don't think so. I don't know why it's X-rated. We, it'd be a good thing to investigate. It's like, it? while that... I, th- I was waiting for you to tell me, because I figured you knew everything about this. You never I shut up about Midnight it, Cowboy. No, that's not true. Every night before we go to bed, you're like, oh, Midnight Cowboy this, Midnight Cowboy that. Anne Heche was born that same day. And then Monday, May 26, 1969, Apollo 10 returned to Earth after a successful eight-day test of all the components needed for the upcoming first manned moon landing. Yep. Landing, Getting there. The aircraft carrier USS Princeton was within three miles of the splashdown target in the South Pacific and recovered the capsule. The three astronauts, Cernan, Stafford, and Young, were the first, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, were the first to have returned from space clean-shaven after demonstrating that they could use an ordinary razor and cream without the danger of hair bristles floating in the cabin. Oh. I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, I know. I thought they would float everywhere. So, uh, May 27, 1969. Cut it. Cut that one. Okay. Wednesday, May 28, 1969, 20 employees of a dynamite factory were killed and 33 others injured in an explosion near the city of Araquipa. <laughs> All right. Dynamite factory. In a dynamite factory. You like, know, I got to think, when you take a job yeah. at the dynamite factory, you, you got to know. Yeah, you probably you, have to sign something. You, you've got to have a death wish yeah, of some this sort. This is a dynamite factory, just so you know. Are you sure this, you want to yeah. work here, Larry? Right. Uh, I don't know. Larry, I'm going to need you to sign this thing saying that you could blow up because this is a dynamite, dynamite factory. Is this, in fact, a dynamite factory? It's a dynamite factory. Yeah, my cousin Larry works at a dynamite factory. And then he blew up. Yep. Nobody cares about Mario Andretti. And then June, that brings us to June 2nd, 1969. The U.S. Supreme Court voted 6-2 to two in the case of Boykin versus Alabama to set aside a death sentence uh, for Af- an African-American who had pled guilty of the armed robbery of five stores in Mobile, Alabama, holding, Mobile, Alabama, right? Holding that yeah. it was clear from the transcript of the case that Edward Boykin's plea had been made without any indication that he had been made aware of its consequences. So far as the record shows, the judge asked no questions of Boykin concerning his plea, and Boykin did not address the court. Boykin had been scheduled to go to the electric chair in June 1968, despite the fact nobody had been killed in the robberies, and the only injury had been when a girl was struck in the leg by a ricochet of a bullet. The court did not reach the question of whether a state could impose a death penalty for armed robbery without fatalities. Oh, my God. I know. Isn't that insane? That is insane. If he was white, he would have been let yeah. go. He would oh, have been yeah. slapped on the wrist. Yep. 
Terrible. The death penalty for Fucking that. crazy. And it's back now. They just killed two people this yeah, week. See yeah, that? they did. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, it's hard because there are, there's a few people that we've covered. Yeah, that, that should have died. That it's, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's probably more punishment to live in life in prison, I guess. Yeah. But. And the other thing I sometimes think is it, the justice system is just so un, is so screwed up. But like some mur- like serial killers and murderers and stuff, they'll they'll give more information in order to be spared the death penalty. Yeah. So they'll tell you where the body is if they don't have if they That's can the death penalty's off the table. Yeah. So it's useful in that situation. You know what I mean? It, because it's a bargaining chip for somebody who really did murder people. Yeah. But at the same time, it could really cause, you know, there's just false confessions and there's all kinds of problems like that. So it's nuts. Uh, the seven, uh, June 3rd, 1969, was the 79th and last original episode of Star Trek. Okay. The episode was called. I don't you know. You big Star Trek geek, are you? I'm not. Turnabout Intruder. It was telecast on NBC as the network shifted the series from its 10 p.m. Eastern time slot to a regular 7.30 p.m. Tuesday night location for its summer reruns. By then, NBC had announced that it would not renew the science fiction drama for a fourth season. The episode had been scheduled for March 28th, but had been preempted by a news report about the life of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who had died earlier that day. With an earlier broadcast time, the reruns drew more viewers than the original shows had received, and a precursor to what would happen next. Never high in the Nielsen ratings during its years on NBC, the show would attain greater popularity in broadcast syndication starting as early as September. And in Wednesday, June 4th, 1969, Armando Socaras Ramirez, a 22-year-old refugee from Cuba, arrived in Madrid on Iberia Airlines Flight 942 from Havana after he and a companion climbed into the wheel compartments of oh the my Douglas God, DC-8 I've heard of that. as it was taxing, taxing for takeoff. There's a picture of somebody falling out of the wheel well of a plane that's yeah. on the Internet. I think it's probably this guy because, well, um, they probably didn't have a picture of this in 1969, but ground crew workers in Madrid were surprised when Sakaris nearly frozen from a seven-and-a-half-hour ride in the unpressurized wheel compartment. Yeah. Oh, my fell God. Fell out of the right wheel well after the airliner came to a stop. Oh, my God. Sakaris had endured an air temperature as low as 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And with little oxygen, uh, when the D- DC-8 was cruising at an altitude of 29,000 feet over the Atlantic Ocean. And reports at the time concluded that he was believed to be the first person in medical history, apart from heart transplant patients, who has been frozen alive and recovered. It, 40 degrees is not that cold. That's what I thought, too. 40 degrees doesn't... Maybe that's not even freezing. So it says 40 degrees, 4 degrees Celsius. Oh. Hmm. Uh, that, this is according to Wikipedia, so they yeah. I'm wrong. So um, Takaras told investigators that the other stowaway... I would bet the wind chill, though. Yeah, like that's true. Maybe. Going... How fast does a jet go? Like Yeah. Fast. Hundreds of miles per hour uh Sakaras told investigators that the other stowaway 16 year old jorge perez blanco had climbed in the left side wheel well and was believed to believed to have fallen to his oh. death 
after the airline pilot noticed that the landing gear hadn't fully retracted oh and had God. lowered it a second time. Two weeks later, however, several new arrivals from Cuba reported that Perez Blanco had apparently tumbled onto the runway while the plane was taxiing for takeoff and that he'd been taken to jail. Oh, so he so didn't he fall didn't out. Fall yeah, out. They thought he did. God, yeah, that Google be, that, That's everybody. my biggest nightmare, my biggest fear. That's your biggest fear? Falling that's, from a wheel well? Yeah, that's pretty close. That I Remember the space. guy who, exited, thought, who thought he was, was going your... to the John and he opened the oh, yeah. cabin door and fell out of the airplane? <coughs> that, that'd be worse. The space would be worse, yes, but that this is pretty close up there. Don't they say that when you fall out of a plane or something that high mm-hmm. that you die of a heart attack before you... I think that's a lie. What, do you suffocate? Maybe. Or do you hit the ground and you're perfectly alive? Oh, God. Oh, I don't want to think about that. I know. Thursday, June 5th, 1969. In the first authenticated case of falling space debris causing damage on Earth, the Japanese freighter ship Dai Chai Chinai. That sounds like... Oh, God. Dai Chai Chinai was heavily damaged by wreckage from a Soviet spacecraft that had re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Five of the crewmen of the Dai Chai Chennai were seriously injured by a chunk of debris while the freighter was traversing the Strait of Tartary, where they make tartar sauce, between the island of Sakhalin and mainland Siberia. And the accident was then investigated and confirmed by the United Nations. According to the Japanese crew, two Soviet Navy ships arrived at the site shortly after the freighter had been struck. Okay. That same day, the Tupolev two one forty four supersonic jet became the first civilian airliner to be test flown faster than the speed of sound. And on Friday, June sixth, nineteen sixty nine, the U.S. Court of Appeals voided the Hershey Directive that had been sent to American draft boards by General Lewis B. Hershey, the director of the Selective Service System. Okay. Uh, and that was permitting immediate induction to the. That is to reclass classify the status of any anti-government protesters who had a deferment with an upgrade to 1A permitting immediate induction to selective service. Basically, all protesters are now getting drafted. Drafted? Yeah. Holy shit. Yep. That same day, New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath called a press conference to announce with tears in his eyes that he was retiring from professional football less than six months after the most valuable player being the most valuable player of Super Bowl three. Oh, he retired in the wake of a threatened suspension by Pro Football Commissioner Pete Rozelle because Namath had been and Namath had been ordered to sell his one half interest in a New York restaurant, Bachelors Three, because some of the restaurant's regular customers were bookies who were taking gambling bets on the restaurant premises, and others were members of organized crime. Uh, Namath would reverse his position a few weeks later and report to the Jets training camp in July. Uh, so they they were worried he was throwing games. I think. Oh. Saturday, June 7th, 1969, the long-awaited debut of Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood performing together in the short-lived supergroup Blind Faith. I have no idea. Took place in front of 100,000 people in London's Hyde Park. You never heard of that? Nope. Guitarist, vocalist Clapton, and drummer Peter Ginger Baker came from the recently disbanded rock group Cream. Winwood had played keyboards and was the lead singer for Traffic, the first supergroup uh Oh, the first supergroup bassist Rick Gretsch from Family completed the quartet. 
Blind Faith would release their only album in August and do concerts in Europe and the U.S. for 11 weeks before playing their final show in Honolulu on August 24th. I wonder if they had good songs. I don't Blind know. Blind Faith. I'll have to look that up. And then June 8th, 1969 was a Sunday. Twelve members of one family, two parents and ten of their children, ranging in ages from six months to 17 years old, were killed in an arson fire that destroyed their home in Parkersburg, West Virginia. The only survivors were two of the other children, ages 15 and 13, and their grandfather. Two days later, the surviving teenagers were arrested after police said that the 15-year-old girl had told them that they intentionally set the blaze following an argument with their parents. Oh, my God. After the teens were indicted for murder and the case scheduled for trial, the Wood County, West Virginia Circuit Court would rule that an alleged confession by the girl and subsequent evidence turned up by the confession were obtained without her knowingly and intelligently waiving her rights and thus inadmissible. So what happened? On April 17, 1970, the murder charges would be dismissed because the only evidence linking the teenagers to the crime was no longer available. I wonder if they really did it or if she was coerced into a confession. Maybe they were. Um Thursday, June 12, 1969. For the first time in history, part of Niagara Falls was turned off as a coffer dam was put in place behind the American Falls portion of the U.S. How did they and turn Canadian it off? Waterfall. Isn't it a natural phenomenon? They put a coffer dam in place. Oh, I don't know what that is. Uh, it's a dam. some sort of dam. Yeah. Uh, Horseshoe Falls and the Bridal Veil Falls continued to flow without interruption, but the American Falls were allowed to run dry. For the next five months and 13 days, repairs were made to prevent erosion of the riverbed, and tourists were allowed to walk across part of the area where the river had run its course. The dam would be removed on November 25th, and all three portions of Niagara Falls have flowed continuously since then. Would you ever go over Niagara Falls in a barrel? Nope. Why not? Maybe if I was, if I was about to die anyway. <laughs> You think? Yeah, that would be my last thing. Put me in a barrel. Send me over. Yeah. Do people really do that? Yeah, I think so. They do? I don't know if they still do that, but they, they used have. to. Yeah. Um, that same day, Canada's Criminal Law Amendment Act 1968-69, decriminalizing abortion and homosexual relationships, was approved by voice vote in the Senate of Canada, following its third reading and having passed Commons on May 14th. Okay. Uh it legalized abortion in Canada on condition that a pregnancy could be terminated if a consensus of three physicians at a licensed hospital determined that the mother's health, not otherwise defined, was in danger. Oh. The bill also allowed gay relations between two consenting adults aged 21 and older in private dwellings. Oh, that's an improvement, you I You can guess. only do it in private. private. Okay. Uh, and then Saturday, June 14th, 1969, Steffi Graf was born. <laughs> Sorry. Come on. You know who Steffi Graf is? Yes. Sunday, June 15th, 1969, an American television show aimed at fans of country music was aired for the first time, appearing on the CBS network at 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Hee haw! Popular with viewers and hated by TV critics, the show was described by one reviewer as a hayseed version of Laugh In, with probably the worst title of any show to come along this season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used to watch it when I was little. Yeah, my my dad made me watch. Yeah. Like he always had it on. I felt. Yeah. I feel like he somehow found a twenty four hour loop of hee haw. He, -haw. he probably just... bought those VCR tapes of 
No, the this greatest was of we didn't have a VCR yet oh. when he did this. Like he, w- I just remember him sitting, sitting there, and we all wanted to watch TV, and we had to just watch whatever he was watching all yep. the time. And we always watched Hee Haw, and I hated it. Like I was like, please, anything else other than Hee Haw. <laughs> and he would just, oh, this is funny. He's like, no, it's terrible. That was my grandma with Mash. She yeah. watched. I mean, I, I didn't say it was terrible, you but I, I, when it. I was little, I didn't care oh, about I hated war. Hee-haw. And it's like country music. I hated yeah. and the jokes I didn't get. They're the only thing I ever liked about it was uh, Earlene Mandrell. Remember the Mandrell sisters came on. I had a crush on Earlene. Oh, you did. Yeah. I don't know why I just heard, but yeah, yeah. And there were girls in bikinis and stuff. And that's what my dad would always appeal to that. Oh, look, there's girls. Those girls, Joe. Girls like it. Watch it. I was a little God. kid, you know. Anyway, trying to push you towards heterosexuality as hard as he can. I guess. I always liked boobs at a young age. I think they thought that was funny. Um, Ice Cube was born the same day he started. Isn't that crazy? Uh, And then that brings us to something you have on Monday, June 16th, 1969. I understand you have a little something that happened to have happened the same day that American rapper MC Ren was born. Mm-hmm. As Lorenzo Patterson in Compton, California, he and Ice Cube, born one day apart, were both in the rap group NWA, which we talked, we played a song from. How crazy is that? Okay, isn't that funny? Like we played no, it because of the drum beat, and Ice Cube was born, then MC Ren, and now your murder story. How cool uh, okay. is that? I'm gonna tell the story. Wait, wait, one more thing about MC Ren. No more. He put out an album called "Kiss My Black Ass." <laughs> All right, that's enough. Yeah, I'm gonna Sorry. I'm gonna tell you the story of the giggler. The giggler. Yep, the giggler. This doesn't. This doesn't. This sounds fun, right? Easy going. So I got my information from I did it for Jody dot com. I did it for, for Jody. J o d i. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a reference to John Hinckley. Oh. Who killed shot Reagan for Jody Foster. Oh, 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 right. He did it for Jody Foster. Yeah. Right. CelebrateBoston.com and DangerousMinds.net. Oh, dot net. So for 40, uh, not for 40, 45 years ago, a serial killer prowled Boston. Really? Yes. 45 years ago? That's. That would be this time, I would think. 4569 his, his riotous high pitched giggles almost but not quite drowning out the screams of his victims. Ooh, I'm scared so about giggling. Giggling's on weird. June 16th, 1969. Oh, the same day that MC Ren, American rapper right. as Lorenzo Patterson was born. And this was at 1:30 a.m. There was a call to the Boston Police Department switchboard. And the caller's voice had a real Boston Boston accent. I'd say Boston, not Boston. He said, my dear, at the corner of Washington and Neyland streets in a construction site, there'll be a man down in the water, dead. When the operator asked the caller's caller's name, he identified himself only as the giggler. Laughing like a maniac, he hung up the phone. So they didn't probably didn't know if he was saying giggler or giggla. Yeah. Well, I think it was. Giggla. So despite. um, Er, uh, Giggla. Despite the reputation that Boston had of of sexual repression and things like that during this time. Because everybody's Catholic there, right? There was a area of Boston called the Combat Zone. And okay. this was like a p- 
pornography and nudie bars and Ooh. this it was a strip downtown yeah yeah kind of like uh, and it was like times square okay but it was smaller than a little smaller than that gotcha so um, the combat zone huh yep cool. so as promised when the policeman surveyed the location the anonymous caller had cited which was an intersection smack dab in the combat zone center anonymous the um, officers did indeed find a male corpse submerged in a water-filled ditch, his skull crushed. Oh, man. The decedent was Joseph Breen. The decedent? Aged 34, an employee of the Brookline Water Department. Oh. The former Marine had begun his evening drinking with friends at the novelty bar. There's nothing wrong with drinking with friends at a novelty bar. This was an establishment the Boston Globe described as a rundown joint in the neon-lighted combat zone where some people drink beer directly out of the bottle because they have a hunch it's safer that way. I've always drunk beer out of a bottle. The novelty featured shuffleboard courts in addition to its full array of more lusty delights. And during the course of the evening, Joe Breen struck up a match with a dark-haired stranger his friends would later describe as pudgy. <laughs> that's how I'm, that's why i hope i'm always described you don't worry babe oh engrossed shit. in the game with his new friend here joe breen opted to stay behind his pudgy friend when his friends got ready to go because yeah. they wanted to go across the street yep at 2 a.m as the bars were closing his friends returned to the novelty but joe breen and his shuffleboard partner were nowhere to his be found chubby shuffleboard partner pudgy pudgy a, a is a uh, shuffleboard is that is that like a is that the thing you bars? It's those discs and it's got on like the floor, salt. and you use that thing. So on the floors are on a on a thing on a stand. You stand up and do it. It's not yeah. on the floor, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah. You stand up and do it, and there's marks on the floor. Not yeah. on the floor, but it's like a, a shuffleboard's like there's it's, some on the floor, but isn't there shuffleboard also? It's on a, it's like a table, big long table I with don't salt. Think. I don't What's that? Think. I don't okay. know what you're anyway. talking about. All right, I'm an idiot. All right. Um, Put salt everywhere. Anyway, his pudgy friend is so nowhere to be found. they're nowhere to be found. Assuming he'd gone home, Breen's companions left, unaware that their friend was at the very mo- moment exiting the combat zone, not in a taxi, but a body bag. Yeah, shuffleboard's not on the floor. It's a... Oh, it's not? It's a, a table. Oh, it is? Yeah. What am I thinking of? What am I thinking of? Oh, I of guess it can be both. Yeah, the floor one. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the table one. All right. Together, we've got all the shuffleboards covered. That's true. I'm in love so, with you. An, an undercover police officer. And now, quit looking at shuffleboards, please. I'm not. I'm looking back at my. An undercover police <laughs> officer. And one of the friends present on Joe Breen's final pub crawl staked out the novelty for a time, eager to question the man last seen with the victim. Yeah. The mystery shuffleboarder never reappeared, however. Oh, uh, we're looking for a. Hey, we're looking for a pudgy shuffleboarder. And eventually. Hey, pudgy shuffleboarders around here. Detectives moved on. All right. So, as the name implies, there was no shortage of violent death. Ripe for investigation in the combat zone. I guess that's why they call it that. I guess that's why they call it. So then, six months later, on December 26th. Oh, wait. December 26th, 1969? The same day that the Joey Bishop show, the ABC television network's late night attempt at competing against The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. was telecast for the last time a little more than two and a half years after its debut. And one commentator would note at the time the Joey Bishop show was third in the ratings because the number of ABC affiliates didn't carry that program. And that and Bishop, who had deferred to guest host more often the, towards the end, did the monologue and then he left. 
leaving Regis Philbin, the, his sidekick, to host for oh. the remainder of the 90 minutes oh, wow. that same day. Yep. I didn't know Regis Philbin was his no, sidekick. I didn't either. Nine-year-old Kenneth I'm Martin. I'm control. All right. Sorry. Nine-year-old Kenneth Martin was reported missing. Oh, a nine-year-old? Thir- a third grader at St. Ambrose School. Oh. He'd last been seen near South Station, the city's major transportation hub. I don't like this. Twelve days passed, and Kenneth Martin's fate remained a mystery. Then on January 6th, 1970? Yes. Oh, the same day uh, uh, that, uh, you know, wide receiver Keenan McCardle was born, but also on Marcus Welby, MD, Billy Kincaid is the son of prominent rights activist Sam, and he's beaten by a cop during a nonviolent student demonstration where he becomes Dr. Welby's patient, and the doctor is accused of covering up for the policeman that same day? Yes. Marcus Welby. There was an anonymous anonymous, anonymous tipster anonymous. who contacted the BPD call center and said the boy's body could be found in one of the tunnels beneath the station. Oh. At the time, law enforcement failed to connect this phone call to the giggle-filled tip, which had led them to Joe Breen's body the previous summer. But this guy wasn't giggling. No. Okay. South Station is a labyrinth, and it took searchers two days to find Kenneth Martin's body stuffed in a canvas sack in one of the station's subterranean passageways. Whoa. The boy had been choked to death. A length of twine wound around his neck several times and pulled tight enough to cause a permanent groove. No indica of sexual assault could be located, and Kenneth appeared to have been killed shortly after he went missing. Poor kid. He had occasionally earned, Kenneth had occasionally earned extra pocket change resetting pins at the South Station bowling alley and was thus well known to the staff. One of the alley employees remembered he'd last seen the murdered boy in the company of another Kenneth, Kenneth Harrison, an unemployed cook who occasionally bunked down in one of the station's many unoccupied offices. Was he pudgy? And did he play shuffleboard? Detectives soon learned Harrison, age 31, had hopped a train to Providence, Rhode Island the previous day. Uh Uh-oh. So certain the financially strapped Harrison hadn't checked into the Ritz-Carlton, uh, the BPD detective Jack Daly traveled to Providence and canvassed the local Fleabag motels. In a stroke of luck, the investigator soon spotted the suspect hanging out on a street corner. Uh-oh. Returned to Pudgy Boston for interrogation, board. Harrison eventually admitted he'd killed Kenneth Martin but claimed to have no memory of the event. Drunk out of his mind, he'd been chatting with the boy in an abandoned office when he was suddenly struck with an overwhelming urge to kill. Next thing he remembered was waking up the following morning next to Kenneth Martin's throttled corpse, or that was Harrison's story anyway. Yeah. Stashing the boy's body in an out-of-the-way passageway to prevent discovery, Harrison said he eventually hightailed it out of town, but not before phoning in the corpse's location to the authorities. Yet, though the circumstances of Kenneth Martin's death had been laid bare, Harrison's confession was not yet complete. As long as I'm here, I might as well tell you about a few more, he told his incredulous interrogators. Oh, no. So Harrison's killing spree had begun two and a half years earlier. On the first one was on May 24th, 1967. May 24th, 1967, the same day that Dwight Myers, Jamaican-born American hip-hop rap artist known as Heavy D, was born that same day in Mandeville, Jamaica. While working as a cab driver, he'd offered a ride to six-year-old Lucy Palmerin, a South Boston schoolgirl, en route to purchase candy at a local sweet shop. Uh, it's not entirely clear how the girl ended up in Harrison's taxi, but Stranger Danger wasn't as well publicized in the 1960s. No, stop and as a recent emigre from Puerto Rico, Lucy's English was spotty. No. We, o- we have only Harrison's word on the matter, but she allegedly entered his taxi willingly. After a quick jaunt around the neighborhood, Harrison parked his cab on a bridge overlooking the Fort Point Channel site of the Boston Tea Party. 
Oh. As the pair exited the vehicle, he motioned for Lucy to clamber onto his back for a piggyback ride. Seized by a sudden homicidal impulse, instead of settling the child on his shoulders, he pivoted and threw her off the bridge into the watery abyss below. Lucy's body was found five weeks later on May 24th, entangled in pilings near the shore. Amazingly, despite the well-traveled nature of the location, no one spotted Harrison dumping little Lucy in the water, and her death was labeled accidental. That's crazy. That same day, Heavy D was born. Clearly, there was something about the Fort, Fort Point Channel that beckoned Harrison's dark impulses. Eighteen months after Lucy's death, on November 26, 1969. Oh, the same day that the Apollo 12 spacecraft splashed down safely in the Pacific Ocean, ending the second manned mission to the moon? Yep. He was walking across this very same bridge when he spotted 75-year-old Clover Parker slipping and sliding on the icy pavement. 75-year-old? Mm-hmm. At least it's not a child. Though he was no Boy Scout, Harrison offered to usher her across. Yeah. As they plodded along the snow-covered snow-covered span, the familiar homicidal urge began to build, and halfway across, he snatched the frail lady's cane, punched her up, uh. a quote, punched her up, and then tossed her over the guard barrel into Boston's famously dirty water. Uh. Unbelievably, despite the fact Harrison had committed two completely unplanned murders on a public road in broad daylight, he again escaped notice, as was the case with Lucy Palmerin. Mrs. Parker's death was deemed accidental by the medical examiner, her facial bruises mistaken for post-mortem injuries. Oh. Mrs. Parker's death was never even mentioned in the media. Poor the only lady. way Harrison could have known the circumstances of her passing is if he was present at the scene. That's right. So it's unclear if he giggled during his first two murders, but number three, he totally did. It was a chuckle fest. This was a chuckle fest. Huh? Car- Kenneth Harrison had been Joe Breen's final shuffleboard partner. After the pair had left the novelty, they'd argued over the price of a bottle of whiskey and cab fare, Harrison claimed. Yeah, Not in the mood to haggle, he attacked his new acquaintance, bashed him in the head with a large rock, and rolling his body into a water-filled ditch at the combat zone construction site. Uh. An ex-Marine, Joe Breen, was no f- frail old lady or child. Yeah, man. He, he fought hard for his life. Fight, yeah. But every time he attempted to surface from the muck, Harrison pummeled him anew, and eventually Breen, his skull fractured, stayed down. <sighs> Harrison then made his gleeful call to law enforcement. Poor guy. Four corpses to the wind, Harrison's homicidal rampage was not yet finished. On January 28, 1966. Oh, the same day that the U.S. Selective Service System announced that it would change its guidelines for the conscription of college students and college-bound high school graduates by barring Class 2S draft deferments for students whose grades were in the lower half of the freshman class, the lower one-third of their sophomore class, or the lower one-fourth of their junior class. Mm-hmm. So the kids with low grades have to go to the fight. That's bullshit. That same day? Yep. One of the combat zone's hobo hotels had burned to the ground. Hobo hotels? Yep. Eleven people died in the Paramount Fire, and more than 50 were injured. At the time, the conflagration had been blamed on a gas leak. Harrison, however, revealed he'd set the blaze for, quote, shits and giggles. Shits and giggles! He just wanted the pleasure of watching the building burn, he explained. Interestingly, Harrison was never indicted for the Paramount Hotel Inferno, and the Boston Fire Department's website still lists gas as, as the blaze's precipitating factor. It does? Perhaps the impetus for keeping Harrison's arson confession hush-hush was financial. Gas companies have far deeper pockets than unemployed cooks, and uh. by the time Harrison's admission, that any lawsuit resulting from the fire would have been well on their way to being settled. Ooh, okay. Now, uh, that's crazy mm-hmm. that they're looking for the money on that. But uh, I was just thinking, like, what? wouldn't it be great if you had twins and you named them shits and giggles or dogs like dogs. You had two dogs I think dogs would be the better go take shits and giggles for a walk <laughs> 
Finally, with a total of 15 victims accounted for, the giggler's conscience was clear. He was tried for Kenneth Martin's murder first, although his attorney claimed Harrison was too drunk to achieve the means necessary for first-degree murder. Really? The lawyer described the basis of the crime as one of drink. The yeah, jury disagreed. Just and, oh, they do, yeah. On November 18, 1970. Oh, the same yep. day that on Make Room for Granddaddy? You know what that is? No. You remember Make Room for Daddy was the Danny uh, Thomas show? Okay. It was like rehashed for a couple of years, called, oh. but they called it Make Room for Granddaddy. On that show, Kathy is upset to find that Danny has invited a guest for dinner on informal hamburger night. But her attitude changes when she learns that Frank has the last name Sinatra. Oh. Frank Sinatra guested on on that What's on that Up show, for Granddaddy. On that show. On Make Room for Granddaddy. All right. So. Kenneth Harrison was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Oh, he probably didn't watch that show then. As prosecutors prepared to try Harrison for the murders of Joseph Breen, Lucy Palmerin, and Clover Parker, a deal was struck. Realizing that, like colonial patriot Nathan Hale, he had but one life to give to his country, Harrison pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in each case, receiving three life sentences with the possibility of parole to run concurrently with his life sentence without parole for the murder of Kenneth Martin. Though he'd been sentenced to hard labor at Walpole, Walpole State Prison, Harrison was first sent to Bridgewater State Hospital in a bid to regain a little sanity. There, he idled for nearly two decades passing his days toiling in the hospital kitchen. A peculiar work assistant, as a man plagued by sudden homicidal impulses, seems a poor choice for a job working around knives. Yeah, I would think. On April 21st, 1989... Oh, the same day that Sam leaps into a mafia hitman who may not live long since he is romancing the Godfather's girlfriend, also an attempt to bring Sam home, causes the 1965 East Coast blackout on Quantum Leap. Yep. The greatest show ever made. Harrison was scheduled to leave Bridgewater to begin his stint in the Massachusetts state prison system. Unwilling to leave the asylum that had become his home, he instead opted for early checkout. The day before his transfer, the giggler was found dead in his cell, having ingested a lethal dose of Elevil, an antidepressant medication. Oh. The laughter was over. The laughter was over. Yep. Is that your line or is that from? That was, I got that last line from, yeah. One of those from one of those from, websites. I did it for Jody. Oh, I did it for Jody. So let's credit where credit, credit is due. Yes, the laughter was over. Is right. It's not your super funny line. No more laughing for him. How about no that? More, That's yeah. fine. Uh, you've had your last laugh. You had your last laugh, Giggler. Say. Say, Giggler. Park the car. That was great. Uh, that was a funny story. Ha ha. That bring, now let's finish up June. June 22nd, 1969 was a Sunday. The Cuyahoga River at Cleveland, Ohio caught fire after an oil slick floating on the river ignited. Oh, my God. Factories along the Cuyahoga had regularly dumped their waste products into the yep. waters for decades. Before it was extinguished, the floating blaze burned two wooden railroad trestles and warped the tracks with an estimated repair cost of $50,000. I think I've heard of that. Have you? Mm-hmm. It was That's like before the Clean Water Act and stuff. Yeah, it was probably just garbage mm-hmm. and everything. That's the same day that actress and singer Judy Garland was found dead Aww. of a drug overdose yep. in her London home on Cadogan Lane, three days after she returned from a New York business trip with her fifth husband, Mickey Deans. God, fifth husband. Yep. Uh, did you know that she died of a... Yeah, I did She know had that. drug addiction her yeah, whole life, Yeah, she had it her whole life. Um What's Judy Garland's most famous? Wizard of Oz. Oh, she's the Wizard of Oz. She's the... She's Dorothy. Dorothy. <laughs> God. I know she's a super famous old lady, but... 
There we go. She's Dorothy, right? Did she, did she do anything else? Yes. Big, like all kinds of stuff? Or? Y- yeah, Meet Me in St. Louis. And she did um, A Star is Born. What are you, Judy Garland? Oh, A Star is Born. Oh, A Star. Wait. There's, a ben, there's been several of those. All the hundreds of those. That's mm. right. I tried to watch the... Wait, who's in uh, who's in uh, Gone with the Wind? Vivian Lee. Oh, she looks like Judy Garland. Anyway, she looks like the Dorothy lady. Anyway, Monday, June 23rd, 1969, six bystanders on a busy Miami street were killed and 12 others injured when Dominican Airlines Flight 401, a cargo plane, crashed and burned shortly after takeoff. All four of the crew died as a crippled DC-4 glided down Northwest 36th Street at 345th and impacted with a building on the corner of 34th Avenue housing Charlie's Auto Body Shop and apartments on the second floor. Oh, man, that would be bad. That'd be rough. Uh, And on June 26, 1969, was a Thursday, a former NASA official told reporters in Houston that Lunar Module pilot Edward Buzz Aldrin had been originally scheduled to become the first man to set foot on the moon during the upcoming Apollo mission, but that mission commander Neil Armstrong was not unaware of the importance of being first and that he decided to supersede Aldrin, uh, and he pulled rank. Oh, he did? Yeah. Uh, June 28, 1969, the new number one song on the Billboard charts, Henry Mancini, love theme from Romeo and Juliet. I don't know how that goes. I don't either. I don't really care. And then Saturday, June 28, 1969, was the Stonewall Riots, which we talked about last episode in great detail. Yes. Um, but that's the same day that the United States launched Bonnie, a pigtailed macaque. Macaque? Is that how you say that? Monkey? Mm-hmm. Macaque, I think. Macaque. The United States launched Bonnie, a pigtailed macaque monkey, into Earth orbit, orbit at 10.16 p.m. as a passenger on Biosatellite 3. The intent was to keep him in the weightlessness of outer space for 30 days Longer than any living creature up to that time. Bonnie imported from Thailand and designated by the American press as an astro-monk, as opposed to the chimpanzees used in earlier American missions, referred to as chimpanauts. He had been trained to operate a food dispenser that rewarded him for pushing one of four symbols on a screen. However, Bonnie's health deteriorated over the next few days, and he was returned to Earth on July 6th. Poor it's little terrible thing. to put those monkeys in space. I know. Nuts. And then Sunday, but I guess you had to. Yeah. Sunday, June 29th, 1969. I mean, maybe, don't get on me, PETA people. Maybe you didn't have to. Uh, <laughs> Sunday, June 29th, 1969, the mailgram was given its first test in a joint venture of Western Union and the U.S. Post Office Department as an experimental service to be introduced in 1970, combining features of the more expensive telegram and first-class mail. The mailgram transmitted messages directly to the selected post office post offices which would then print them out and send them by a letter carrier the same day to the intended address well that's smart kind of like almost email yeah or a fax almost a fax Mm -hmm. western union president russell w mcfall the president of western union sent the first mailgram to washington for delivery to postmaster general winton m blount and it said you have a great ass. No, that's And my not, head is stuck right up it. That's not what it said. No, I don't know what it said. It didn't say it. So, and that concludes American episode 118 of American Timelines by History for Jerks. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. 
whoever's out there still, thank you. Yep, you're good looking. You got great butts, and all of you. And please rate us and subscribe and all that stuff. Yeah, and give us free advertising. And it's time to get out of here. Tell everybody you know that we're the best podcast, even if we're not. We're so tired of hearing about the six days. I said we're so tired of hearing about the six days. When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. I said that we're so tired. as a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Thank you, love you. 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 Thank you, love you.